0: Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. In November 2019, ahead of World AIDS Day, La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society held a one-day symposium looking critically at the intersection points of HIV and people's lives, especially people and communities affected by HIV who have not been at the centre of the Australian HIV response. In a four-part series, you'll hear from a variety of public health professionals discussing various aspects of HIV and intersectionality. This week, in the second part of our series, you hear from me, Hope Matumbu, wearing my hat as the Secretary of the Victorian African Health Action Network, or VAHAN, on a panel alongside Shedza Malunga, an African-Australian health professional. We discuss concepts such as invisibility, hypervisibility, allyship and service delivery as they relate to HIV and intersectionality. You'll also hear from Sarah Fagan, a peer navigator at Living Positive Victoria. She'll be discussing her work as a peer navigator supporting women living with HIV. First up, let's hear from myself and Chiedza. I just wanted to talk about um, the ideas around hypervisibility and invisibility. So when Chiedza, when you were talking the issue that you you said around imagery, around Black people, apes, HIV. And when it comes to... So, so it ties in also with you know, what you, you said, Peter. I think that when we talk about intersectionality, we also have to think about dismantling racism and that sort of thing. So when you look at cases where maybe people have... You know, criminal cases where someone has been accused of spreading um, HIV knowingly or unknowingly... Usually when it's black people who who are the HIV positive people um, or usually non-white people, the sentencing is different, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the discussion around their bodies and the fetishization of black bodies is quite different, then we become hyper-visible, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas on the flip side, the tension with that is the invisibility when it comes to services allocation and equity. So when we think about the role of the media, when we talk about African gangs or other forms of like vilification. And when we think, you know, you, it goes, you, when you see articles where it's like the black person that was HIV positive, you usually get those, the, those racial connotations around mm. blackness being an ape and being the other. We see similar things hypervisibility and invisibility when we talk about. Cup Day, when we talk about addiction in Australia, when we talk about alcohol and other drugs and the things that some communities do that other communities cannot do, and then those communities are over-policed. And it just... I think one of the things of intersectionality is reflective practice and to be like, hang on, whose voice is missing, right? Because sometimes there can be a lot of noise. And a lot of noise that I hear at the moment now and, you know, um, all the stuff that's happening around North Richmond... The voices that aren't being heard thinking about some of the women some asylum seeker migrant women who are living there who are just families trying to get by and seeing I'm not saying there's a right side or like a wrong side but a lot of the voices that are prioritized are people who are homeowners or people who look a certain way having a tug of war between each other whilst there's I'm Poor families. There's a class issue, definitely, in the way that that is represented, and the over-policing and under-resourcing of some of those high rises, where low-income low-income families who are just trying to get by, like other families, and have an opinion themselves, are sharing the same space as 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 some of the things that that are seen as problematic within that whole conversation and that whole um, debate. And their voices should be prioritised and listened to as well, because we do know there's been, you know, like public housing in itself comes with a lot of challenges and living in that space. And this is something that I think that people have decided to ignore when we think about the safety of those families and the voices of some of those people who live in low-income parts. So I'm just saying, you know, think about things whose voices have not been heard, think about things from a class perspective, from an anti-racism perspective and really interrogate news sources, media, the way that we talk about the other in this country and and that is how our practice will develop as well and get better. I wanted to add a comment
1: around thinking about the real practical things in terms of being an ally and thinking about the people that are left and I'll give an example of breastfeeding um, HIV positive women. So in the first world, breastfeeding is not recommended, right, for HIV-positive moms. But in the third world, from which most of HIV-positive women of African descent would be coming from, breastfeeding is recommended. So try and think about a serodiscordant couple, right? Coming into a relationship, being pos If the wife is positive, she has a baby. Trying to explain to a serodiscordant, oh, negative husband, that I'm not allowed to breastfeed in Australia. What message about her virus are we actually giving to the community? I don't know if you get what I'm trying to say. So if, 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 if in the third world, people are breastfeeding and they've got poorer treatment than you equals you here, and then our policy here says HIV positive moms can't breastfeed, what are we actually saying about that woman's virus? So to think, we can talk about intersectionality on a high level, but when you think about people's lives, it is personal it's actually really personal so to think about okay the science is saying you equals you but what does you equals you mean when someone wants to breastfeed how are we supporting those choices how are we ensuring that the people are having children this is my other <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> how can we have limited hospitals where hiv positive women can give birth in? Mm-hmm. right i've got i'm working out in the southeast Can you explain to me how a woman is going to explain to her entire family why she can't give birth to hospitals between Pakenham and Dandenong and has to come all the way to the women's hospital? What plausible explanation is there, right? It means we are forcing her to out her diagnosis, right? Why, what's wrong with you? Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have a complication? Is everything okay with the baby? What does she actually, what narrative does she have to come up with to, I have to travel all that way to come into the city to have a baby because only one hospital has got the team that works with positive moms yeah. where are we actually looking at service delivery and that's why we're saying colonialism is still very re- relevant in our lives today because we are occupying and excluding in our delivery of healthcare right some of the things that we talked about as well. Sorry, I'm not occupying space here. S100 S- prescribers are in the city, which means a lot of women's health care. And working in, I've worked across two tertiary hospitals, means women are being managed by ID physicians who are usually largely male, right? Their women's health stuff is getting left out it's because they don't have a regular GP who's going to do a CSD for them, a breast screen for them. And you're thinking, at what point do we wait until a woman has got a cervical cancer or a breast screen um, a breast cancer before we actually look at how are we pushing back in the system to say that 's being an ally that 's sustainable, make healthcare care acce- um, accessible for everyone and I think the question around speaking up for people one of the disadvantages i face working in the space and've i worked in HIV and moved on to refugee and migrant populations is the fact that you are educated, you're not worthy to represent a community. Mm. At what point does having an education take away my blackness? At what point does being ed- educated take away my religion? When you go to reference groups or consumer advisory groups, tell me what major hospitals got a consumer advisory groups that have people who can't read minutes. But when it comes to people of diversity, we want the person who can't read so that we pass policies and practices that suit us. Right? You don't want me on a table right? Because I'm going to read and say, hang on, how are we saying we did a community consultation with African people, and yet there were three male community leaders in the room? So that becomes exclusion. People exclude educated people who will be able to read minutes and make a positive contribution because they are not cultured. So I think all of that stuff around challenging our stereotypes. If for a consumer advisory group for Australians, we require people with a base level of education, why are we not requiring the same? Because we are actually perpetuating colonialism in the way that we want decisions to be made. Mm. Thank you. I shall be quiet.
0: (laughs) 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 Women on the Line Chiedza Malunga and myself answered a question from an audience member about how people working within government-funded programs can practice advocacy and allyship in the HIV space within their organizations.
1: And I guess if you go back to the reflection organizations that are funded are usually also telling the government they've done community consultations and that these programs work. So I go back to organizations should actually do ethical consultations and not provide ideas about programs that actually don't work, but saying they work. Because I think therein lies the problem. More funding keeps going on when we're recycling the same thing and we know we're not getting any new people. But the moment someone says that they lose their job. But I think it's important to also reflect that back to the organizations to say, at which point do we actually say our consultations are ethical and we've been doing this for 10 years and nothing has changed. At what point do we shift our our focus? It's very hard working inside an organization to be able to speak about advocacy because most organizations are state or federally funded. But to look at where are the bodies that sit that could have a voice so for example when the space that i work in is refugee health to look at how to other bodies like the refugee health network occupy a space which the hiv sector is not engaged with so engaging with those organ with those um organizations like the refugee council the victorian refugee health network that actually can do advocacy to advocate on behalf of the community
0: i think integrity and resistance I think I've I've worked definitely in a lot of organisations, Chairs, I feel like I've, I've followed you where I've been, pretty much sometimes the only black person, the only black face, and the double burden that sometimes we've had to carry in terms of being part of structures and institutions that don't listen to us or want us qualified up to a certain level. You know, be a project worker up to a certain level, and I think that. Some of my most favorite jobs have been jobs that people would consider menial that's why i went back to do nursing so that i can have that space to be an advocate you know and you have to think about yourself what you know about your community it it, again it's about locating yourself and part of that integrity of locating yourself if you're smart enough to have the language for that organization and you have the energy to stay there find different ways of resisting find different Mm. ways of sharing information sometimes it's just that practical thing it's not like a job and done you know the reason why sometimes people hired me um was to keep some of that energy going energy that people without my experience don't have for them it was a job Mm. done go home for some of us it's a lot more painful when your communities are affected and it's never really a job done go home so to protect myself, I've had to leave and find other avenues of, like, making money and being able to speak up and be a watchful eye on you all. Um, and so, therefore, you guys should become eyes yourselves, eyes and ears, and do what you can with the power and privilege that you can. Again, it's about just finding those ways to, to subvert the system and, and knowing what everything is about as well, um, beyond the scope of, of of your role. Are you, you know... Are you just a person that is in an organization just working? I don't know. The whole world's on fire. People are finding different ways to resist. Chileans are literally burning their institutions down. If you decide to do the same, you know, I'm with you. It depends on your level of energy to do any of this stuff, okay? We're all individuals with individual choices, and we shouldn't let the institutions make us think that... that that all of that choice and all of that power is gone just because at this moment government funding is this way. We have the power to change governments, and that's it. Integrity, all right? That's That's it. it. Resistance. (laughs) (laughs) On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. If you're just tuning in, this is the second of a four-part series with recordings from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard me, Hope Matumbu, alongside Chiedza Malunga, discussing concepts such as invisibility, hypervisibility, allyship, and service delivery as they relate to HIV and intersectionality. Next up, let's hear from Sarah Fagan about the work she does supporting women living with HIV.
2: Cool, so Sarah Fagan, I am one of the peer navigators with Living Positive Victoria, one of my colleagues, you saw Ashwin before, um, and I'm also um, vice chair of NAPO, which is the National Association of People with HIV Australia, um, and I do heaps of other stuff, and we might get to that in a minute. <laughs>
0: Sarah answers a question from the moderator about care and support needs for newly diagnosed women living with HIV and how they vary through an intersectional lens.
2: Yeah, I'm one of the key navigators of Living Positive Victoria and I do, um, as a queer identifying woman, um, I do see all population, which is really special, but the majority of the people I see are women with HIV. Um, somebody said before about, um, it was Kirsty about, you know, they're not culturally diverse women. They're not women from different backgrounds. They are women. And, you know, the needs of women are very unique. Um, and, of course, cultural issues have a factor. Um, if drug use is there or sex work as well, there's issues around criminalization and safety. Um, but I think the main issues that I see come up, and I, I sort of feel like this is the same for all people that are newly diagnosed with HIV am I going to live? am I going to be loved? and what is my future going to look like? Um, and I think the power of peers and um, you know, hearing personal stories like we just did, it gives this relatable context and this feeling of safety and um you know, that they're going to be okay, that they are part of a community that is larger and greater than that one experience, and they are supported through through that journey.
0: Here we hear Sarah discuss the use of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylactic amongst women and how it can differ to and how it differs in its use amongst men
2: one's better than yeah. none. And I think that's important. Um, I think in female population or more heterosexual um, environments, PrEP has been really, the, up, or the uptake is sort of slow, but also the use is different. So it can also be used as um, a mental sort of breakthrough as well because they know that if the partner's undetectable, um, say, say the, the male partner's positive if women is, is negative. Um, prep has also got the capacity that they, they know there's no risk of transmission, but the woman still might have a bit of trepidation about having unprotected sex. Say. So prep is it gives her that choice, um, and it's just another another tool, another another sort of breakthrough that can sort of break down those barriers. Unfortunately, though, the uptake and understanding of prep in female or in, in the female population is pretty low. Um, a lot of women don't know about it. You equals you same I think women from born overseas um, have a little bit of trouble getting their heads around the information um I did actually an interview on Sunday with ABC and the presenter said zero equals zero she got it wrong and I'm like oh no it's you equals you but I'm like zero equals zero is sort of easier to understand in a way instead of undetectable (laughs) equals untransmittable we're using language that is very Mm. like well clunky but um you know like how you know we're assuming people's um health literacy And our level of understanding, where zero equals zero, I was kind of like, man, that makes sense. Like zero viral load means zero transmission. Mm. So I don't know, just some, it's a little bit of something, something for the table.
0: Here we hear Sarah discuss the sexual health needs of women living with HIV.
2: First of all, I want to shout out to the ladies on the panel this morning talking about breastfeeding and um, the lived experiences of women because you just nailed it. The reproductive health rights of women, even in Australia, are concerning um, and our options are limited. So amazing, amazing stuff this morning. Um, I think, yeah, when we couldn't think about STIs and people with HIV and women with HIV specifically... So many women I know and deal with went in for sexual health screenings. They were actively engaged in their sexual health, Um, they were really sex positive and they were doing all the right things, assuming that a HIV test was included in their STI screenings and it wasn't based on unconscious bias, based on how they looked. Were they at risk? Were they Aboriginal? Were they African women? Did they look like me? Were they Asian born? And that straight away became a factor of if they were tested for HIV or not. Um, And I know myself and my other colleagues have met women that have been diagnosed with AIDS-defining illnesses with irreversible hand. Um, We heard about that woman in New Zealand that was... um, she got diagnosed with AIDS after she became blind. And this is happening in 2018, 2019. This is crazy, you know? Um, And so, yeah, this assumption that then when women are accessing health services and they, I want a full STI screen, full STI screen, you know, or how many partners have you had? Maybe you had two partners. Whatever, whatever it is, the reasons why these doctors are not testing them for HIV is a massive gap in care, and this is why we're seeing women presenting so late um, in, in, in care. And you know, and then just them having to work back their health from that point. It's unfair when we can be actually capturing them at point when they're asking for an STI screen. It should be an opt-it-out option, and that if they don't want a HIV test, well, then why? You know, when you're asking for a full STI screen, all STI should be included. Women on the
0: line. Here we hear Sarah discuss medication adherence in women living with HIV and whether it differs from men living with HIV. Yeah,
2: I don't know who you see. Can can your people talk to my people? Because my people have issues with adherence. Um, and so many different things work and I think it's so individual and it's like, it does depend on access, safety um, housing, yeah stable accommodation um, having somewhere safe to store your medication and no one see that you're taking them you know, we've got, like especially with women that I'm working with, they've got kids, they've got partners they've got busy lives that they can't, and they just, nobody knows you know, apart from me or maybe the other Sarah in the back there you know, um I've got, I've got some women that just won't take their medication because they're too busy looking after their kids and in their head they have to look after their family first and they come second so they just don't have time to get on medication. And as much as I can kick and scream and try and get them to say, hey, but if you don't take your medication, you won't be there around for your kids, it's when people are ready and it's walking through those fires with them and walking through those moments with them when they just don't see the point because they're priority zero and everything else is priority 100. And just being with them and holding that space until they're ready to start treatment. But, you know, yep. can
0: your people talk to my people? Sarah discusses the work that goes into supporting people living with HIV in Australia who are on temporary uh, visas who would then need to go back and, um, and how that support is facilitated both here in Australia and uh, when they return to their country of origin.
2: So I want to just do first, like, the Life and Love with HIV or Living with HIV is an amazing blog and worth checking out. It's beautiful. Um, But to start off with um, um, people born overseas or people that visas are expiring, they have to go back to their country or work a lot with people, and so does Ashwin a lot with people in that situation. Um, And if they're diagnosed here, they started on first-generation treatments, one of the first-generation, the latest treatments that are just amazing. Um, And we do have a chat with them about, you know, access, accessibility, um, about generic medications and also, um, you know, what doctors who can do. Some doctors are actually pretty cheeky and under the table and they are uh, quite supportive of um, sending medications to people if they're going back for six months, say. They will, you know, hook them up and, 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 you know, do the supply. If they do need to move back indefinitely, then it's about negotiating that. But that's definitely on our radar and we're aware of it. And I think FIFOs are a really important... Um, issue and this again goes back to sex work and decriminalisation of sex work because it just gives more people empowerment and understanding about um, the risks and it gives us more opportunity to do education Um, and it's the same for people in armed services um, and just people you know in general that do travel so um, yeah really important issues thanks for bringing them all up but yeah a lot of this stuff is on our radar especially as we live in positive Victoria and at Mm Napua so
0: Here Sarah talks about family planning needs for uh, heterosexual couples uh, who may be
2: serodiscordant or who may be living with HIV. That's so true, Christian. I see that so often as well. Um, And it's not about the fact that you can't pass it on sexually and this and that. It's like, well, they're married. And, you know, the biggest question right now is if they can have a family because if they don't have a family, then their family's going to ask why they're not having a family. Mm -hmm. And then if they have the family, well, why aren't they breastfeeding in Australia? So then we hit all these other roadblocks that come through. But for me, I find when I'm speaking to heterosexual communities, um, having babies is the one thing that they go, ah... Yeah. If you can have a baby, of course you can have sex and it all kinda of like it does, it really cuts through, it's mm. so true. But um yeah, then but then it's those other issues of then why are they going to the royal women's yeah. and then why are they not breastfeeding and if they are breastfeeding then while children's service is being engaged? Yeah. Because we are seeing that still in yeah. Australia. Mm. I've had this for way too long.
0: <laughs> women's on the line <laughs> Oh that was Women on the Line. Women on the line. <laughs> We've come to the end of our recordings from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard from Sarah Fagan, a peer navigator at Living Positive Victoria, discussing her work supporting women living with HIV. Join us next week for the third part in our series looking at HIV and intersectionality. We'll be hearing from Dr. Jennifer Power, a research fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. You'll also hear from Kirsty Machen, the CEO from, from Positive Women Victoria. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and non-gender conforming broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to line at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 3 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigre. Tigre. I'm Hope Matumbu and I hope you can tune in again next time.